Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I'm vice president and publisher here at the Cato Institute. And I'd like to welcome you to a book forum in our long series of book forums for a good friend of the Cato Institute, Ilya Solman, who has now seen a second edition of Democracy and Political Ignorance, Why Smaller Government is Smarter from Stanford University Press. Uh, congratulations, Ilya, on a second edition. Many of you may know the first edition of this book. Uh, it's had a great deal of influence, particularly in libertarian circles, but otherwise, too, in about the issues, in talking about and analyzing the issues that we're going to be dealing with today. Uh, I should say at the first front end, if you're familiar with Cato events of this nature, this is going to be a little bit different today. I thought it might be useful for us to both combine the best parts of our usual events. We'll begin today, for example, with Ilya talking uh, for a few minutes about the second edition, about his arguments, about what uh, the kind of response he received, his thinking about those responses to the first edition. Uh, and then after that, we'll turn to a discussion format uh, when uh, Kristen Campbell and I will um, question Ilya about various parts of this, in part what other people have said, our own interest about this book. And then, of course, as is always typical at a Cato event, at around 1 o'clock or so, we'll move to question and answer from you, the audience, which we appreciate much you coming today. Uh, and then around 1.30, we'll have the Cato lunch where these discussions can continue. So what I'm going to do initially here is introduce both of our speakers, and then we'll go to Ilya's presentation, uh, and, and then follow it with a discussion. So our first discussion is discussing today will be uh, Kristen Campbell. Kristen is making her first appearance at the Cato Institute, and as always, we like to have a special welcome for a new person at uh, coming to Cato. Um, Cato, uh, Kristen is the executive director of PACE, which is Philanthropy for Active Engagement, Active Civic Engagement, excuse me. PACE's mission is to inspire interest, understanding, and investment in civic uh, engagement within philanthropy and to be a voice for, for philanthropy in larger conversations taking place in fields of civic engagement, service, and democratic practice. Previously, uh, Kristen was an independent consultant focusing primarily in civic engagement, education, and leadership. She was chief program officer for the National Conference on Citizenship, where she served for six years, and prior to that, was a member of the social investment team at the Case Foundation. She originally launched her career in the nonprofit sector with a year of national service as an AmeriCorps VISTA at the Points of Light Foundation. Kristen serves at the Alumni Council on the fund for, of the Fund for American Studies, where, by the way, I teach in, in one of their programs, so we have something in common. And she's on the advisory boards of several national nonprofits. Her hometown is Norman, Oklahoma, and she is a graduate of East Central University in Ada. She currently resides in Washington, D.C. Now to our author, uh, who will present his overview. Uh, Ilya Soman is professor of law at George Mason University. His research focuses on constitutional law, property law, and the study of uh, popular political participation and its implications for constitutional democracy. In addition to the first and second edition of our book today, 
He is also the author of The Grasping Hand, Kilo versus City of New London and the Limits of Eminent Domain, which I should say was also a Cato Institute book, although it appeared uh, generally, it was uh, marked a Cato Institute book. It appeared with the University of Chicago Press last year. Uh, he's also a co-author of A Conspiracy Against Obamacare, The Volokh Conspiracy and the Healthcare Case, and is the co-editor of a soon-to-appear-to-book uh, a soon-to-appear book, Eminent Domain in Comparative Perspective, which you can look for that from uh, Cambridge University Press. Uh, he also is the author of uh, two versions of this that appeared also in Italian and Japanese. So this is a, something of an international hit. Uh, I can tell you also Ilya's uh, work has appeared in numerous scholarly journals, the Yale Law Journal, Stanford Law Review, Northwestern University Law Review, uh, he's published articles in a variety, including the leading popular press, uh, including the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Wall Street Journal. And he writes regularly now, for and has for some time, for the Vala Conspiracy, which is affiliated with the Washington Post. And just before our event today, I noticed that Iliad posted an initial post about this second edition, and he tells me that over the next week to week and a half, there will be a number of uh, posts coming out at the Vala Conspiracy about the second edition of Democracy and Political Ignorance. So look forward to that and have a look for it. It uh, first one was very interesting. And meanwhile, we'll start our event today with Ilya talking about the second edition of Democracy and Political Ignorance. I'd like to start off by thanking the Cato Institute for organizing this event and Kristen and John for what I know will be their very thoughtful and insightful comments. Uh, I'd also, last but not least, like to thank some of the participants in the current 2016 election for making the issue of political ignorance great again. While, as we will see, this is not a new problem, uh, it has been in particularly blatant form evident in this year's election cycle, perhaps more even than in most others. So the basic problem addressed in the book is this one, the issue of political choice. Here we have Willow the Golden Retriever trying to decide between the Democrats and the Republicans. The question is, does she have enough information to make a well-informed decision? And in her case, we really don't need to worry. She actually knows a great deal about government and public policy. But in the case of most of the American electorate, much of the time, uh, there is much more in the way of grounds for pessimism. So I'll start out by talking a little bit about why the problem of political ignorance matters and why we should care about it. Then I'll discuss what is perhaps the least controversial part of the book, the massive extent of political ignorance in America today, including with reference to the issues in the ongoing 2016 election. I will then go on to briefly discuss why most of the ignorance that we observe is actually the result of rational behavior by individual voters, not the result of stupidity. Uh, and finally, I'll talk about what we can do to perhaps mitigate the problem of political ignorance, namely we can make more of our decisions by voting with our feet and perhaps fewer at the ballot box. We can vote with our feet in the federal system by deciding where we want to live based on the government policies there and also often in the private sector uh, as well. 
So first things first, why should we even care about this problem in political ignorance in the first place? Uh, some people, like the individual currently up on the screen, they say even if the voters choose out of ignorance, that's okay. They have a right to do so. They're just exercising their individual freedom. Uh, I think John Stuart Mill effectively refuted this sort of argument 150 years ago when he pointed out that voting is not just an individual choice. Rather, as he puts it, it is the exercise of power over others. When we vote for people who will occupy positions of political power, they don't just rule over those who voted for them, they rule over the entire society. And when we exercise power over other people in that way, we have a responsibility to be at least reasonably informed in the way that we do so. Obviously, also in a democratic society, public opinion has a lot of influence on government policy, uh, and therefore, if the opinion is poorly informed, that could have a detrimental effect on policy outcomes in many different ways. So I think we do have reason to be concerned about this, so we should ask, uh, how great is this problem really? Uh, and the evidence is overwhelming that the amount of political ignorance out there is pretty severe. For example, in our last election in 2014, the main stake was that which party would control Congress. Yet in surveys taken not long before the election, only 38% of the public even knew which party controlled the House and which party controlled the Senate before the election, even though that was the main issue at stake. Similarly, both in 2014 and in 2016 and most other recent elections, one of the big issues is the future of the federal budget. What should we do about our very severe fiscal problems? Yet surveys consistently show that most of the public has little or no idea of how the federal government spends its money. They massively underestimate the percentage of the federal budget that goes to big entitlement programs like Medicare and Social Security, even though these are among the largest items in the budget. On the other hand, they massively overestimate the percentage that goes to foreign aid, which is actually only about 1%, but the average voter thinks it's 10 to 20 times greater than that. So the average voter believes if only we could cut that foreign aid, our fiscal problems would be solved. Sadly, with everything of foreign aid, that just isn't the case. The ignorance that we observe is not just limited to ignorance about particular issues. It also goes to the very basic structure of government. For example, a recent survey found that only 34% of the public even know the three branches of the federal government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. Uh, now, as I discuss in the book, the problem of political ignorance is not new. It's not unique to the current election. Nonetheless, the present election does show its significance uh, even more than perhaps most other elections do, and nowhere more obviously than in the success of Donald Trump, who uh, says, I love the poorly educated, and well, he should because political ignorance is at the heart of at least a large part of his success. If you look at the major issues that he has stressed in his campaign, virtually all of them involve significant exploitation of political ignorance. For example, he first came to prominence uh, in his campaign when he made that famous or in many ways notorious speech about how Mexico is sending us criminals, murderers, and rapists and does increasing the crime rate. In reality, social science research consistently shows that immigrants, including Mexican immigrants, have a much lower crime rate, especially a much lower violent crime rate than native-born Americans 
Americans do. Far from increasing the crime rate, they're actually lowering it. Uh, however, polls show that 50% of the public believe that immigration is increasing crime, and this is true of over 70% uh, of Republicans. Uh, the other big issue besides immigration, which Trump has consistently stressed, is trade. He famously talks about how because we have trade deficits with nations like Japan and Mexico and others, that's a sign of economic failure, of them beating us, turning us into losers. In reality, as economists across the political spectrum will tell you, a bilateral trade deficit with some one foreign nation is no more an indication of economic failure than my trade deficit with my local supermarket. Sadly, they buy many fewer of my products than I buy of theirs, yet that is in no way a sign of any kind of economic problem. Uh, and surveys more generally reveal that trade is one of those areas where there is the biggest gap between poorly informed public opinion and relatively well-informed voters and experts across the political spectrum. Uh, now, I should emphasize that Trump is far from the only candidate, either in this election cycle or in others, who has exploited political ignorance. It's actually a common part of political strategy. And in the book, I discuss many other recent examples uh, from both parties. So this is just an extreme form uh, of a common ongoing problem. And as I also mentioned, the book with both recent evidence and evidence going back many decades, today's levels of political ignorance are actually not unusual. They are actually roughly similar to what we have had for almost the entire period that we have had modern public opinion polling uh, to measure these things. So th this is not a new phenomenon of the 2016 election. Uh, it's an ongoing one. But in some ways, it's more severe than before because government today is much larger and more complex than it used to be, which makes it even more challenging for relatively ignorant voters to figure out uh, what is going on. So when you hear data like this, the tendency is to think it must be because the voters are stupid. Or alternatively, maybe it's because the information just isn't available to them. In reality, neither of these two common explanations is likely to be true. Far from being stupid, the evidence strongly suggests that IQ scores have actually gone up in the last 40 or 50 years, uh, so people are actually becoming more intelligent if you believe the data. Similarly, it's not plausible to argue that the information is not available. To the contrary, with the internet and other technology, it's more easily available than ever before in human history. So the problem is not that the voters are stupid or the information is unavailable, it's that they're not using their intelligence for the most part to learn the information which is out there. Uh, and as it turns out, this is perfectly rational behavior for most voters. If your only reason to become informed about politics is to cast a better or more informed vote in an election, that's not much of an incentive because the chance that your vote will make a difference to the outcome uh, is infinitesimally small. Only about one in 60 million in a presidential election, for example. So most people don't know those exact odds, but they do realize that spending a lot of time learning about political knowledge uh, is not actually uh, a very good payoff for that activity. Uh, now, of course, some people do learn about politics or do learn about things even though they can't affect outcomes. Take, for example, sports fans. These kinds of people know a lot about sports even though they can't affect the outcome of games. They just find sports interesting and they love cheering on their favorite teams. 
Similarly, there are the people who in the book I refer to as political fans, people who love learning about politics, love cheering on their preferred candidate uh, or ideology or party uh, and so forth. And these kinds of people most certainly do know more about politics than the average voter, but there's a problem. When you acquire information for the purpose of enhancing your fan experience, you tend to do so in a highly biased way. Think about how sports fans react to new information about their favorite team. If it reflects well on the team, they love the new information. If it reflects badly on it, often they're going to be in denial. This is exactly the same way the political fans, those most interested in politics, tend to react to new political information. They overvalue anything that supports their pre-existing views, undervalue or ignore anything that cuts against them. It is even the case that they tend to seek out political information only from sources that have the same views as they do. This is totally illogical behavior if your goal is to get at the truth. Uh, as John Stuart Mill famously emphasized, if you're a real truth seeker, you should be seeking out information sources with opinions different from your own. They're the ones that are more likely to give you information that you haven't heard before. On the other hand, this is completely rational if your goal is not primarily to get at the truth, but rather to enhance your fan experience. Uh, economist Brian Kaplan calls this rational irrationality. Uh, when the goal of seeking out information is not primarily to get at the truth, it is actually rational to be highly biased in the information that you seek out and in the way that you process it. So we have a very serious problem of political ignorance and also of bias both among the mass of the public and among the minority of political fans who have greater factual knowledge but are more biased in the way that they process it. Uh, nonetheless, uh, some scholars argue that uh, we don't need to worry too much about political ignorance uh, because we have information sh uh, shortcuts available to us. That is, uh, we have small bits of information that can make up for larger bodies of knowledge that we may not have. Uh, in the book, I go through a large number of these shortcut theories. Here, I will mention just one that is particularly relevant, particularly uh, common in the literature. This is the idea of retrospective voting, uh, which says that you don't need to know uh, much about what's going on in government and public policy. All you need to know is, are things going well and are the incumbents? If they're going well, you can reward them and reelect them. They'll continue their good policies. If they're going badly, by contrast, you will punish the bastards at the polls, and then you can elect a different set of bastards who will have better incentives to adopt good policies. Uh, I think there's something to this theory, but it has two problems which illustrate well the problems of shortcuts generally. One is you often need pre-existing knowledge to use these shortcuts effectively. Uh, and it turns out often the voters don't have it. Uh, for example, you need to know which things the incumbents really can control and which things they can't. You don't want to punish them and reward them for things they didn't cause. And sadly, when you look at most elections historically, the biggest determinant is the very recent performance of the economy, even though most experts will tell you that uh, political incumbents have very little control over short-term economic trends. It is also the case that many other things that incumbents have no control over influence outcomes, things like shark attacks, droughts, and even victories by local sports teams. All of these have political effects, even though 
incumbents have very little leverage over them. Moreover, uh, the theories of shortcuts implicitly assume that we choose the shortcuts to help us get at the truth. In reality, in many cases, we choose them based on rationally rationality to reinforce our biases. Uh, and this is certainly true with retrospective voting, where the data strongly suggests that, for instance, when there is a Democrat in the White House, Republican voters tend to overestimate the rate of inflation, unemployment, and other bad things that are going on. And Democrats have the opposite kind of bias. Uh, so uh, therefore, uh, the shortcuts may actually exacerbate rational irrationality rather than uh, cure it. Uh, so in the book, I discuss at some length why it's unlikely that we can greatly increase levels of political knowledge, including in the new edition addressing uh, various new theories that people have put forward of how we can do it. I'm happy to talk about that in questions, but for now, I'll press on to some things that uh, I think may actually will help reduce the problem of political ignorance, and that is making more of our decisions by voting with our feet and fewer at the ballot box. Uh, on the screen is a classic example of people voting with their feet, immigrants in the United, arriving in the United States in the late 19th century. Uh, they've realized that there's greater freedom and opportunity available here than in the countries where they came from. Similarly, we can vote with our feet in the federal system by choosing which state or local government to live in, and also in the private sector by choosing what products to buy or what civil society or religious organizations to join. Uh, now, why would foot voting be any better than ballot box voting from the standpoint of political ignorance? Uh, after all, we do need to acquire information in both cases. I think the big difference is one of incentives. Uh, think about this. If you're like most people, you probably spent more time acquiring information the last time you bought a car or a TV set than the last time you decided who to vote for for president or for any other political office. Is this because your TV is more important than who runs the government or deals with more complicated issues? I think probably not. It's because you knew that the de decision on the TV set would actually make a difference. The TV that you choose is actually probably the one that will sit in your living room. On the other hand, with the president, there's only a tiny chance that your choice will actually make a difference, so you take that decision less seriously. This applies not just to your incentive to seek out information, but also your incentive to analyze it uh, in an unbiased way. Uh, if you're like me, you've probably run into the following social norm in your lives, uh, the norm that says you shouldn't argue about politics in mixed company. Uh, if you go to a party and you start explaining to the people there why their political views are wrong, they probably won't thank you for correcting their mistakes. Indeed, they might well get very angry and annoyed that you're doing it. If you want to be a popular kind of person, you learn not to do this sort of thing. Believe me, I know from painful personal experience. Uh, on the other hand, if you give those same people new information that's relevant to a foot voting decision, like buying a TV or deciding which city or town to live in, uh, they'll usually be much more receptive. Why the difference? Well, I think a big part of it is that with new political information, uh, at, at best, you're getting information on a choice that is unlikely to make a difference. Meanwhile, you're suffering the pain of having your views questioned, perhaps even the pain of being shown to know less than the person you're talking to. On the other hand, foot voting information is actually news that you can use. There's a good chance you can actually act on it, so people tend to be more open-minded. 
What are the implications of this? Well, one is that we should favor greater political decentralization. Uh, when more power is devolved to the state or local level, more decisions can be made by voting with your feet, uh, and therefore in a framework where people have better incentive to be well informed. Similarly, in many cases, we may want to devolve more issues out of the government entirely into the private sector where you can vote with your feet, often even much more easily than between state and local governments. The moving costs of foot voting in the private sector usually are much less. Uh, now, I do not contend that any of this proves that we should have the maximum possible political decentralization or the maximum possible limitation of government power. Uh, obviously, political ignorance is not the only issue that you want to take into account in thinking about the role of government in society. So if you read the book, as I hope you will, and agree with all my arguments, as I also hope you will, you may not favor decentralization and limitation of government power as much as I do. However, you will favor both of those things, I think, to a greater degree than you would if you thought you lived in a world where political ignorance is not a serious problem. Uh, I suppose there's one last possible solution to political ignorance, retrieverocracy. In an electorate where most of the voters are golden retrievers, like up on the screen right now, the decisions would be made much better, perhaps, than with human voters. So that's another alternative. But unless and until we can get to retrieverocracy, I urge you to consider the possibility that we can mitigate the problem of political ignorance by expanding people's opportunities to vote with their feet. Thank you very much. Um, as you might have noted in my bio, I am not a political scientist or theorist, but I do spend a lot of time in communities of civic practice and broader civic engagement. And so that's the lens that I will venture to bring into today's conversation. Um, so with that, I do have... I'd like to, I think, start with a little bit of a broader contextual question, which is, um, Ilya, you, you speak a lot in the book about different types of knowledge. There's kind of basic cognitive knowledge, like do we know basic facts and figures about our government? And then there's this deeper kind of skills or habits knowledge about being able to understand the implications or ramifications of potential policy proposals or candidates. Um, and you invite John Stuart Mill and your presentation and speak a lot in the book about the danger of political ignorance or lack of knowledge being that one rational behavior such as a vote could lead to potentially dangerous collective outcomes. And so I guess this raises two questions for me. One is what does it really mean to be informed? And how do we truly define knowledge, particularly when it comes to balancing current knowable uh, challenges with potentially unforeseen or unknowable future consequences? So what is truly knowable? And is there still a role for subjectivity or opinion in that? And the second question would be, what is the true purpose of a vote, especially when you only really have control over yourself? Um, is it exercising individual voice and liberty and agency, or is it about more of a collective commitment or collective consciousness or commitment to the greater good? 
so all of those are good questions. I think I counted actually three rather than two, <laughs> but I will try to go through all of them in the same order uh, as you did. So first, what does it mean to be informed? And in the book, I actually devote an entire chapter to this question because there are multiple different theories of political participation, some of which demand more of voters than others. So at one extreme, you have a theory like deliberative democracy, which says that voters should be really, really sophisticated and knowledgeable in the things that they uh, know. I think it's fairly obvious that the data show voters fall far short of that. Uh, what is less obvious, but what I think is also shown in the book, is that they fall short of demands of even uh, theories which ask much less of the voters. For instance, the idea of retrospective voting that I noted earlier, that you should just be able to assess whether the incumbents are doing a reasonably good job or not. It turns out that voters don't even have the levels of knowledge much of the time necessary to do that. Uh, so whether you're a person who wants to ask a lot of the voters uh, or whether you're a person who wants to ask a little but still enough for them to make reasonably good decisions, you have reason to be troubled about the levels of political ignorance uh, that actually exist. The only people who might be completely untroubled are people like the individual in one of our earlier slides that says, well, the voters can just do whatever they want and we can't have any grounds for criticizing what's going on based on levels of ignorance. There are a few political theorists who take this view. I think it is a flawed view for both the reason I mentioned but also others we can talk about. Uh, the second is sort of defining uh, knowledge more generally, factual knowledge as opposed to deeper knowledge. In the book, I discuss primarily basic factual knowledge about the economic and political system and how it works and about particular issues. Obviously, you can argue maybe voters should know more than that. If you, have, you can have basic factual knowledge about what the government is doing, but still do a poor job of assessing the consequences of policies. Some people also think that in addition to factual knowledge, voters should also have moral knowledge, knowledge of what are the good values. The more things you think the voters should know, uh, the more you should be very troubled about the current state of affairs. Uh, in the book, I focus on factual knowledge because I think there is more agreement on the idea that at least some factual knowledge is desirable, and also because I discuss in the book many things that look like disagreements over values are in fact disagreements over facts, but values do matter, and if you think the voters do a poor job of assessing them, then that further exacerbates the problem. Uh, finally, what is the purpose of a vote? Uh, obviously, there can be more than one purpose. In order to care about the issues uh, addressed in the book, all you have to do is at least buy into the notion that one of the purposes of the vote is to impose accountability on government leaders and also to try to improve the quality of government policy or at least prevent it from becoming uh, too terrible. Uh, so even if you also believe that votes have an expressive purpose or if you believe that voters have a civic duty to vote regardless of how knowledgeable they are, I in fact do not believe this, but many people do. Uh, even if you believe that voting can serve these other purposes as well, uh, you have reason to be concerned about the problem of political ignorance. So the question I want to raise is a little bit like that. Uh, as you know, there's also the idea of accountability and other purposes come to mind. Larry Bartels has a book out now, and he and he's been arguing for some time that voters really don't impose any accountability, maybe even on the economy, back four or five months before an election, not certainly over a whole term. But let's just say for a minute, I mean, one thing sort of uh, comes to be an issue for, as you read your, this book is why do we have elections? Is it just because, uh, I mean, it seems like uh, voters seem like they're not conveying information, accountability, and so on. 
Is it just because we've always had them and people would want them and elites would sort of struggle if you tried not to have them? Uh, or so if we put that aside, that it's just sort of a status quo uh, fact, should we want elections? Are they something that's uh, desirable given this degree of voter ignorance, the degree to which you argue it's not likely to happen? And after all, the foot voting itself doesn't require elections, really. You can do foot voting without having people go somewhere in November. Is it just sort of an all a, a big show that really can either have be something bad or perhaps uh, not uh, have anything at all? Um, Yes, that's a good question, and it raised an issue that people often raise when I did talks about the first edition, which is, doesn't your argument imply that maybe we should do away with democracy entirely, right? That if you go back to the ancient world when the issue of political ignorance was first raised, this is exactly Plato's answer. Plato said political ignorance is a big problem. Voters don't know what they're doing. We should replace it with rule by some sort of informed elite. And you see some scholars today arguing for a similar approach uh, albeit somewhat less sweepingly, for instance, giving more power to well-informed bureaucrats and the like. Uh, I think, as I discussed in the book, that democracy still does have one important virtue, at least, which is that while the voters are generally ignorant, they don't know very much about what's going on, there are some forms of government failure which are so blatant and so obvious that even ignorant voters will tend to notice them and therefore punish the incumbents at the polls when they happen. In the book, I discuss the striking fact that in no modern democracy has there ever been a mass famine, even though mass famines, including ones deliberately created by the government, are actually quite common in authoritarian regimes. And the reason for this is fairly obvious. When a mass famine is going on, even ignorant voters will tend to notice and they will tend to punish the incumbents uh, for this this sort of event. Uh, so I think democracy still has important advantages over dictatorship. However, democracy with an extremely large scope that is hard for the voters to keep track of uh, and that leaves a lot of room for political ignorance to have an effect is not nearly as good as more constrained, more limited and decentralized democracy where there is a greater role for foot voting. I don't rule out the possibility that at some point in the future we might have or might conceive of a political system that is better than democracy. It is not my view that it will always and everywhere be the best possible system. But I do think for the foreseeable future, our best option is probably to limit and decentralize democracy rather than to try to do away with it entirely. I guess to pick up on a theme of that a little bit, you talked in the presentation about um, the role of ignorance in giving rise to some candidates in this election cycle. Um, and you do speak a great deal in the book about sortition and the role of experts and transferring more political power to those with, quote, superior political knowledge. Um, so while ignorance might have played some of a role in, in creating uh, the rise of some of the candidates that we have today. Um, some of these anti-establishment candidates seem to have, and the divisiveness that they bring with them, um, seems to have risen from a bit of a public sentiment that Americans feel like, many Americans feel like their voice is not being heard or their opinions um, are not being valued. So do you think those sort of elitist um, policies could continue to contribute to this extremely divisive and partisan climate that we're experiencing right now? I'm not sure I fully understand. Are you, asking, are you saying that if 
elites had more power relative to voters and there would be more divisiveness for possibly. That's that what I'm asking. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I think much of the divisiveness that we have is itself in part a consequence of political ignorance and also of this dynamic that is incentivized by the system of people not being open to opposing ideas. Uh, so uh, therefore, uh, you see that in many political eras, but particularly in eras where the parties are in fact far apart ideologically. If you look at what has actually gone on in American government policy over the last 15 or 20 years, I think the data does not support the argument that the elites have simply ignored public opinion. Rather, what is going on is the public opinion is deeply divided. So if you try to satisfy one sector of it, you're going to anger the other. Moreover, even within a party, uh, you have uh, voters wanting things that are incompatible, but not knowing that they're incompatible. For instance, a large chunk of voters both want to keep taxes as well as possible and to get federal spending under control and not to do anything about entitlements like Medicare and Social Security. You cannot do all of these things simultaneously. Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are basically saying you can, but if you look at the numbers, virtually all economists will tell you that these desires are incompatible. So if you try to do some of these things, you necessarily will fail to do others. Or to illustrate another uh, thing, uh, many voters taking on the Republican side would want to greatly diminish illegal immigration. Uh, but if you do the kind of massive deportations that, for instance, Donald Trump advocates, you will get lots of scenes that will look extremely ugly on TV. And while Trump's core supporters may be fine with that, a very large part of public opinion, including even on the Republican side, will not like those images. So uh, that's why Republican politicians like to talk about how, well, we can deport these people, but in ways that will get them to self-deport, so you won't actually have to do anything really ugly. In reality, this is highly unlikely. And I can go on in this vein, but I think there's the overwhelming evidence suggests that our problem is not that the elites aren't paying enough attention to voters. Our problem, rather, is that the voters are poorly informed, often intolerant of opposing opinions, and in part for those reasons, don't realize that there are often fundamental incompatibilities between different things that they want. Mm -hmm. uh, as a result, even very clever politicians or even politicians who genuinely want to help the people, uh, they have difficult dilemmas that they face. So let me pursue that a little bit, too. I want to pose to you a certain kind of libertarian argument that I think you'll recognize. We've both probably heard many times over the years. And it's based in a certain kind of situation, which I would might call the New Deal situation. That is, over a long period of time, you've had what we could call big government, right? And it's difficult to see, you know, exactly. It's been, you know, pretty stable. And so often the libertarians, particularly who are actively politically engaged, will say, well, the problem is really the people don't want that, but the, the elites are corrupt or elites that are going to change things come to Washington and become corrupt. The problem really is to get rid of, uh, in some way or the other, or move aside, not get rid of in a literal way, but move aside the elites, and then uh, a more libertarian uh, freedom-loving kind of policies or uh, voice will happen. Now, I think this argument is rooted in, you've already said things that you know, indicate why that's wrong, but this is rooted in the idea that, in fact, uh, the alternative to uh, that kind of prediction, hopeful forecast, is that, in fact, the elites are, there is a kind of elite New Deal technocracy that's very powerful, 
and that the alternative to having some faith in the people for libertarians is in fact just to give in to technocracy or the New Deal regime or whatever you call it. So this is trying to find a way around that idea that, the, you, know, that you have this kind of particular regime that is anti-liberty, or at least if, if that's too strong a term, is, is uh, essentially not focused on a libertarian kind of future for the country. Now, I wonder how you respond to that. What do you say to libertarians like that are more of a more populist bent? Yeah. So every ideology, not just libertarians, but also conservatives and many on the left, have this notion that is prevalent among some of them, which says the people are at bottom on our side. If it doesn't look like it, it's only because some evil elites have manipulated things, uh, whether it be government bureaucrats and technocrats, or in Bernie Sanders' version, the 1% and the corporatists, uh, or in the right-wing populist version, you know, liberal elites in the universities and the media and so forth. Uh, uh, I think actually looking at public opinion data, as I have done and as I know you have done in your work, and John has also done as well, public opinion data is a good cure for those kinds of notions. It reveals that uh, the public does not fully support libertarianism or even close to it, doesn't fully support traditional conservatism or leftism either. Uh, and it also reveals that the government, while it's not completely responsive to public opinion by any means, uh, it is at least significantly uh, influenced by it. So it is in fact the case that most voters favor having much more government than most libertarians would want. And this is not simply the product uh, of a small elite. Uh, and we can talk about specific data which supports that position if, if you're interested. Now that raises the question of, you know, what prospect is there for limiting government or decentralizing it in a way that uh, I would like to do? Uh, after all, if most of the voters are ignorant, they don't pay attention to facts, why would they pay attention to the arguments that I make in this book or any arguments for limited government? Uh, in the last chapter of the book, I do discuss some possible reasons for hope. Uh, one is that although voters do favor much more government than certainly I think is desirable uh, and they have contradictory desires, they do have a deep suspicion of government and politicians. Uh, if you look at survey ratings of different professions, politicians are down there even below lawyers and used car salesmen in terms of how trusted they are. Uh, and a lot of survey data shows a lot of growing distrust in government both in the U.S. and in many other countries. Sadly, often this is channeled into thinking, well, if only we elect the right person and give them power, uh, they will fix things, they will bring change we can believe in, as Obama said, or they will appoint the best people and solve all of our problems, as Trump says. But I think it's not impossible to channel some of this into uh, minimizing the power of the institution of government itself. Historically, there are some things which for decades and centuries, most people thought government should be doing, which today there's a broad consensus that it should not be. In the book, I discuss uh, attitudes towards government promotion of religion, which used to be thought one of the main functions of government is to help people save their souls by believing in the right religion. What could be more important than that? Over time, at least in the Western world, we realize not that religion isn't important, but that governments tend to make bad decisions on it. Secondly, there are actually experiences of modern advanced democracies greatly reducing or decentralizing their governments. Recent ones, I talk about cases like Canada, 
Ireland, New Zealand, and a couple others in the last chapter of the book. And third, in part because of ignorance, political elites of various kinds do have some swack. The voters don't have complete control over them. And so in some cases, elites can use their influence to make things better. And there are a number of good historical examples of that. So I don't believe we can fully solve the problem in the near future or come close to it. I do think it's possible to make incremental progress. Uh, I don't think there can be a libertarian revolution. Uh, indeed, most revolutions of any kind tend to cause more harm than good. In part because of political ignorance, but it might be possible to have an evolution, if not towards libertarianism as such, then towards greater decentralization and limitation of government power. I would also add recent survey data, including some collected by, in a Cato paper, I think you co-authored, shows that uh, on average, Americans have more confidence in state and local government than in the federal government. This suggests that there might be some, at least some prospect of a constituency for decentralizing government power, at least on uh, some important issues. Although that opinion may not be very well formed. It may be yeah. based on ignorance. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, not saying that, I'm not saying that it's well formed. I'm just saying that there's a political possibility there. It is not my contention that when the public happens to be right about something, that means they did a good job of learning information. And when they're wrong, they did a bad job. Sometimes you can reach the right conclusions for the wrong reasons. And that sometimes happens too. So picking up on a little bit of the theme in that question of, around individual responsibility, um, at PACE, we believe that there are lots of ways that people can be involved in fulfilling the promise and responsibility of democracy and self-governance, including things like volunteering, sustained dialogue, community organizing. So this raises two questions for me, and I promise they're not two-part questions this time. Um, but first is a view of voting practices as the primary determinant of citizen ignorance or intelligence a little short-sighted. And the second would be, are there ways that supporting other forms of democratic or public engagement could lead to healthier voting habits? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, so on the first one, it is certainly true that there are other ways that people can exercise political influence other than by voting. And it is even more true that people can help uh, their fellow citizens in the world generally in lots of ways that may not involve political participation. And I'm a big fan of many of those ways. You mentioned volunteering, uh, getting involved in your community, people helping people in all sorts of uh, different ways. Uh, on the political participation aspect of this, by which I mean influencing government policy, uh, sadly, only a small fraction of population have a meaningful opportunity to do that, uh, in part because going much beyond voting requires much more in the way of time and effort. It often requires resources and skills. So you and I and John, we uh, have the ability to do that in part because you know, we spend lots of time engaging in political punditry and writing about these issues and the like. Other people, professional lobbyists, interest group leaders, and others also have that ability, but only a very small fraction of population is likely to be able to do that. So for the average person, they're only likely way of political participation is in fact going to be voting. Uh, the second question is, well, if people engage in other kinds of civic activities, might that increase their political knowledge? And I think the answer probably is yes. Uh, but 
it's difficult to say how much uh, because the kinds of people who engage in those other activities also tend to be the kinds who are more interested in politics in the first place. However, uh, in part because they tend to be more interested in politics, they tend to have more of this second problem that I mentioned, the rational irrationality, uh, that they tend to be more biased even than the average relatively ignorant voter in the way that they evaluate information and even more fundamentally, I think heavy-duty political involvement beyond voting, as I mentioned earlier, is not likely to be something that uh, the uh, vast majority of the population can do. Uh, so there may be a trade-off between the uh, extent of involvement in, in politics that you want people to have and the number of people who are likely to be willing and able to do it. Uh, and I think that trade-off is pretty severe. Uh, and therefore, uh, I'm skeptical of claims that uh, you know, the way to really fix things is to get people much more heavily involved beyond voting. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, there are sortition proposals that I talk about in the book and uh, that suggest that you know, this can be done in some ways. And we can talk about that later in the questions if uh, the two of you are interested. Yeah, I want to pursue that right now because it's one of the things uh, I've worked on the Electoral College from time to time. And, you know, the way the Electoral College is defended now, there's a bunch of arguments against it. But people tend to say, well, you know, this wasn't a, this was meant to be a democratic element, that what it's supposed to just reflect the popular vote and so on. But in fact, when you think about it and you read about it a while, the founders were Republicans with a small r. They believed, uh, generally speaking, and that government had to be Republican, but not Democratic. They feared democracy. So the Electoral College, among other things, is one version of they did think that what they did think, and you may disagree with this, is that voters could identify, uh, for lack of a better word, the better people in the community. And then the, they could delegate, say, the decision to elect a president to a small number of that group, right? So you have a smaller group that nonetheless is better informed. You're delegating your decision-making power in a way to them, and then they make the decision. Another way to do this would be what he just mentioned. A sortition uh, proposal would be like a jury, people chosen more or less at random, and, and then maybe they become big enough if the uh, uh, body is big enough to get over the problems of uh, misrepresentation and so on. But it, so can you select can the people select better people who then make the decisions, uh, like the Electoral College? Would we be better with an Electoral College that was like the original idea rather than the one we've tried to you know, shoe it, uh, shoehorn it into? And what about the sortition issue in general, where you might show up making, you know, we all have an equal chance to, adults anyway, show up making big decisions for the country? Yeah, so I think there's really two questions there. One is about the Electoral College. The other is about modern ideas of sortition, which are somewhat different. With the Electoral College, uh, it is indeed true the founders had this notion we would select the best people, and then those best people would be the electors, and they would actually select the president. This broke down really the first time they had a seriously contested presidential election in 1796. Why did it break down? Because uh, most people did not, in fact, know that much about 
the possible contestants for being a member of the Electoral College, so they used information shortcuts. And the information shortcut that they used was the early political parties, the Republicans, uh, the Democratic Republicans, and the Federalists. If you were a Federalist, you tended to vote for a Federalist elector, and if you were a uh, Democratic Republican, vice versa. So in fact, even as of 1796, most of the electors were already basically ciphers for the political parties. There was a little bit of variation in the first couple of elections before the parties fully got this uh, system down, but basically that's what it's been ever since. So it has not worked the way the founders intended. The founders did not foresee the emergence of uh, political parties, and they were perhaps over-optimistic about the voters uh, or the state legislatures being able to just objectively identify the best people as opposed to going with their partisan instincts. Uh, modern proposals for sortition uh, hark back less to the Electoral College and more to ancient Athens, uh, where the ancient Athenians made many decisions by randomly selecting people from the citizen body, and then those people would serve on various bodies like the Council of 500, as it was called, where they would make decisions about various issues over a period of time. So some scholars have proposed that we can have jury-like mechanisms where we select, say, uh, a dozen or several hundred people randomly from the population, so they would be representative, and then they would get to make decisions, and over time, because they would spend a lot of time on this, they would become better informed than ordinary voters are, yet still they would be representative of the population. Uh, this notion has become very popular in academic literature. In the book, I discuss several reasons why uh, this solution is unlikely to work well. Uh, one problem is that the people that get selected, uh, it'll actually require quite a lot of time and effort to get them up to speed on anything like the full range of issues that are addressed by modern government, which is enormously complex. They would probably need to serve for a very long time before they became knowledgeable about anything like the full range of those issues. And if they were going to serve for a very long time, then they would, in fact, no longer be just ordinary people. They would be a separate expert governing class, which is precisely what this sort of proposal is meant to avoid. Secondly, there are going to be problems with the way we choose uh, these people, the people who would actually get to be sorted. Uh, there's all sorts of ways in which the government could bias the selection procedure. Uh, and believe me, real-world governments would try to bias it in favor of their supporters and against uh, their opponents. Third, even if this procedure was completely unbiased, uh, if there were only a small number of people uh, in the jury, if you want to call it that, then there's a high probability that they would be unrepresentative just by random chance. Uh, in the book, I discuss uh, that if there was a body of only 20 people, uh, there would be something like a uh, 40 or 50 percent chance that it would be significantly partisan skewed. And that's if you're selecting based on only the importance of one variable, that is, are you a Democrat or Republican? If you also want other kinds of representativeness, race, gender, religion, and so forth, there's even more likely to get askew. This is less of a problem if instead of a body of a few dozen, uh, you have bodies of many hundreds or thousands of people, but the bigger the body, the greater the incentives for rational ignorance of the very kind that we're trying to avoid, because then any one voter's uh, decisions will be less and less significant. So uh, sortition, if used on a large scale, would tend to replicate many of the same sorts of problems that we have with 
existing political ignorance and it would introduce new problems of uh, bias. One other point, you might say, well, this problem knowledge would be less if each of these bodies just addresses some narrow range of issues. So we might select one group of randomly selected citizens to deal with environmental policy, another group to deal with uh, highway construction and so forth. The difficulty with that is that in the real world, these policy areas are actually interconnected. Uh, and you would need some ways of dealing with the interconnections and having these bodies uh, do that would be extremely difficult, uh, if not impossible. More can be said about this, and I, in fact, do say a lot more in the book, including dissecting in more detail some of the specific proposals that have been offered. But on balance, I'm not optimistic that this can work. To the extent that it worked in ancient Athens, it worked because, first of all, Athenian government was much less complicated than ours was. Second, it worked in part because the citizen body in Athens uh, was actually only about a small proportion of the total adult population. Obviously, as you probably all know, it was limited to free citizen males. Uh, so slaves were excluded, women. Uh, but also, uh, for much of history, even among the, the males, uh, it was people who, because of their social class, had extensive personal experience with the major function of government, which, of course, in ancient Athens was warfare. Virtually all of these people had actually served in the armed forces uh, at a, in an age when military tactics and strategy were much simpler than they are now. So I'm not saying, well, therefore, we should reinstitute Athenian-style government with only men getting to participate and uh, slavery and women being a subordinate class. I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is that ancient Athens is not a good analogy for what can be accomplished in modern government, even though this is, in fact, an analogy that often gets trotted out by people who say, look, sortition can work well today because it worked for those ancient Athenians. There is actually some evidence that it worked reasonably well for them, uh, but it's less likely to work well for us. Let's have one more question from Christine, then we'll go to the floor. Great. I really want to bring in the concept of the civic mission of schools and how our education system uh, teaches or does not teach, as the case may be, civics, history, and social studies. Um, you say in the book that increasing overall educational attainment has not necessarily correlated with increased levels of political knowledge, and you mentioned in your presentation that IQ is rising, but is this an issue of breadth or depth for how we think about civics in schools? And could going deeper into the disciplines of history and civics and social studies within both our K-12 systems and our higher education systems as um, non-political disciplines help address this issue? Yeah. So one of the striking facts that I note in the book is that Americans today have two to three years more formal education on average than Americans of 50 or 60 years ago, yet political knowledge levels are basically flat. All of this education has had some benefits, but apparently not in increasing political knowledge. This raises the question of uh, couldn't we do something else in the education system to increase political knowledge? And I think we can in terms of both increasing breadth or depth. Uh, I think we actually have problems in both. It's both the case that most of the public doesn't know much about politics in terms of breadth. It's also the case that most of them don't know much in terms of depth, in terms of the sophistication of their thinking about public policy issues and the like. In theory, a better education system could address both problems, at least to some degree, but there are serious difficulties with this. One is that, uh, that the uh, a public education system is run by the very same government, which has the problem of political ignorance to begin with. It's run by politicians who are elected in part based on 
the ignorance of the voters who are good at manipulating it. So they wouldn't necessarily want a system where people are better informed. Now, of course, the voters, if they kept track of what's going on in the education system, they could incentivize the politicians to adopt better education policies that would increase political knowledge. But if the voters were knowledgeable enough to do that in the first place, we wouldn't need the solution to begin with. Moreover, in some ways, the situation is worse than, than merely the politicians not having an incentive to make things better. It's that the history of public education strongly suggests that one of its purposes, not the only one, but one of its purposes is, in fact, not to increase political knowledge, but rather to indoctrinate uh, people in the view the dominant views of either the political majority or of powerful interest groups. If you look at why was public education instituted in the US and in Western Europe in the first place, often it was for the purposes of indoctrination. In Europe, for purposes of indoctrinating people in nationalism, which governments were trying to promote in the 19th century. In the US, in indoctrinating what were then mostly Catholic immigrants and what were thought of as real American values at that time, conceived of as Protestant values. Now, the indoctrination that goes on in public schools today is not necessarily the same as in the 19th century, but you still see examples of this on both right and left. Uh, there is some data which suggests that school choice, people being able to choose their schools, can inc increase political knowledge somewhat at the margin, though even that progress, I think, is limited. Uh, I would lastly add that let's say you overcome these political problems and you do have an education system that focuses on increasing political knowledge, you would still have the problem of it's very difficult to educate people to understand more than a small fraction of the many complex issues that government currently addresses. And you would have the problem that let's say they graduate high school, they're completely up to speed on political issues as of the age of 18. Well, hopefully they're going to live for another 50, 60, 70 years. Over that time, issues will change. The structure of government will change in many ways. So unless you want them to report for regular re-education sessions during their lifetime, uh, you will, even in that best case scenario, still have of problems of the increasing obsolescence of their knowledge uh, over time. So uh, I think the education system is badly flawed in this area. I think if you had a government that was incentivized to make things better, they could do so. But I'm not optimistic about the actual structure of incentives that actually exists. That's with primary and secondary education. Higher education is a more complicated sort of issue. It's actually one that perhaps I didn't really discuss in the book. Maybe I should have. We can talk about that in more detail in the further questions uh, if people are interested. So let's go to questions as you get prepared in your own mind. I have, uh, your question you want to ask. Uh, first thing is, please wait to be called on. Recall also in advance that I'm going to be rude. I'm just going to sort of point at you and say, that person there on the aisle, uh, it's because I don't know your name. However, if you want to and you have no strong reasons against it, please identify yourself uh, when you ask your question. And also, uh, identify who you want to ask or the entire group, but of course, most will go to Ilya, I think. The gentleman right here, second in, had his hand up. Yes, we'll wait for the microphone, please, so everybody, including the people online, can understand the question. Okay. My name is Sandy Fain. I uh, just want to know, is political ignorance a particular American problem, or is there data showing that it is a problem of all Western democracies, and is it all at about the same level? 
It's a good question. Uh, there is, in fact, data which suggests that this is an international problem and not limited to the US. If you're interested in this, Ipsos Mori, a British polling firm that I have done some work with, uh, they have recently put out a series of studies which compare political knowledge in numerous democracies. I think the most recent one uh, has 33 countries. And the data very strongly showed that in virtually all the countries studied, there are serious problems of political ignorance. For example, uh, voters in many countries make the same mistake as American voters with respect to the distribution of government spending. They also uh, tend to systematically overestimate unemployment rates, crime rates. Uh, they tend to overestimate the percentage of immigrants in the population and many other similar errors. Uh, it is not easy to make good comparative assessment to say, well, the U.S. is better or worse than some of these other countries. The problem, uh, there are many problems in doing that, among other things, different structures of the political system. So it's not always easy to figure out how we compare our level of political knowledge to that which exists in a parliamentary system. Uh, so in some of these surveys, the US shows up relatively worse than other liberal democracies. In others, it's in the middle or even slightly above the middle. It depends on what kind of questions you ask. But the bottom line is that this is not a uniquely American problem. Uh, that it's a problem in many democracies. I mentioned Donald Trump. Um, movements very similar to Trump's with his kind of platform have been very successful in recent years in many European countries, such as France, Germany, to some extent even Britain, uh, in Hungary, and now in Poland. They've actually managed to uh, get into government in the last election in Austria. They fell, I think, just a couple of percentage points short in the vote. Uh, so it is an international problem. This, I think, is why my book attracted some interest even abroad, which I did not anticipate when people uh, said, uh, you know, we want to do a translation into Italian or into Japanese. Uh, and the publisher came to me and said, we know we have a provision in our contract dealing with foreign translations. I'm like, I didn't know there was such a provision. I didn't even think about it. But obviously, the reason why people were interested was not so much because of any merit of mine as because political ignorance is a global problem for democracy and not uh, just limited to any one country. Gentleman on the aisle here. Mark Schroeder, I'm wondering if there isn't an inherent uh, contradiction between voting with your feet and decentralization. If a local or smaller level government has, is in a particularly good state, it will often be uh, rational to keep other people out. So for example, a small suburb that is affluent may uh, try to prevent uh, growth in the number of housing units. Or to take a larger example, a country like Britain, uh, where there is a lot of appeal to the idea of leaving the European Union. And the single greatest argument in favor of it is that they would be able to shut off immigration. Um, so you, you get the question. Yeah, uh, this is a good question. This is something that I addressed to some degree in the book. And free preview, this is something I will address in much greater detail in what I hope will be my next book project, which is all about foot voting and migration, including international migration. Uh, it is indeed true that some communities try to exclude people through, for instance, exclusionary zoning, which is a major problem in the US, uh, and also, of course, through immigration restrictions. Uh, in the book, I say a couple things about this. 
One is that uh, in order to have a well-functioning foot voting system, in some cases you do want limits on the powers of local uh, and regional governments as well. And one of the most important limits to impose is limits on their ability to keep people out and also limits on their ability to force people not to leave, right? So the classic example, uh, slavery. Uh, there are many good reasons to abolish slavery, obviously, but one is that it prevents effective foot voting by definition. Uh, and I would say similar things about international migration. Uh, while this is a big subject, uh, basically I think much, not all, but much of the case against free international migration is in fact the result of the kind of ignorance that I pointed to in my talk, would alluded to some of it in the discussion of Donald Trump. So what we would want is, if not completely free migration around the world, at least much freer than currently exists in order to facilitate greater foot voting, because foot voting across international boundaries often has vastly more benefits even than foot voting internally in a, an advanced nation like the US. Economists em, uh, estimate that uh, if we had completely free migration around the world, that might as much as double global GDP. Uh, that's not a uh, typo or a verbal lapse. It really is double. Even if it would only be 50% not doubling, that's still uh, an enormous amount. Uh, so the other thing I would say, though, is that in order to have effective foot voting isn't necessarily essential that every community be open or every nation be open to migration. It's just important that there be a wide range of choices. So even if we don't crack down on exclusionary zoning, and even if not all nations have uh, relatively free migration, if a lot of them do, that's still a tremendous improvement over a centralized system where uh, decisions on key issues are all made in one place and we all have to accept them or we all have to accept them or leave uh, the country entirely. And in many cases, uh, regional and local governments do have incentives to try to attract people as well as to keep them out. An obvious incentive is the need to attract people who will produce more tax revenue. Uh, and in the book, I note that one way of facilitating this is to have what scholars call a more competitive system of federalism where local and regional governments have to raise at least a lot of their tax revenue themselves from their own citizens as opposed to being subsidized by the central government. That will incentivize them to compete to attract people to some degree at least as opposed to uh, fencing people out. Uh, so, this, so this is an important issue. Uh, it's one that I only partly address in this book, uh, though I do say a good deal about it and I hope to address it even more fully uh, in my next book. Uh, gentleman in the middle, and then we'll... I tend to just, by the way, go about across the room because it's sort of a f random process. Uh, you touched briefly on uh, uh, the incompatibility w uh, concerning uh, political objectives. Uh, and uh, I guess one thing that comes to mind is, uh, is the... Uh, the idea that a, a high minimum wage is consistent with increasing the level of employment. And it just strikes me that there is an avenue for political exploitation of political ignorance, or economic ignorance in this case, that the average voter, for example, does not, under, does not understand that there is a uh, incompatib incompatibility between raising the minimum wage and and also increasing the level of employment. And this is something that I think would carry over into different levels of government. You know, you have a very prominent governor of New York State who is very, uh, very strong on a $15 minimum wage, 
but I'm sure that the average New Yorker is relatively ignorant of the fact that, you know, this raising this wage to that level is incompatible with, let's say, increasing the level of employment within the state itself. Do you have any reactions to that? Yeah, so I agree with most of what you said. Uh, obviously, ignorance of very basic economics uh, is widespread, and it's part of the broader phenomenon of political ignorance that I mentioned in the book. I do recognize that there are some studies which say if you have certain increases in the minimum wage, particularly modest ones, uh, that the disemployment effects may be relatively minor. However, the vast majority of economists, including even those who are sympathetic to small increases in the minimum wage, they will tell you that increasing it to $15, which would be more than doubling what it currently is or close to doubling what it currently is, uh, that will cause large disemployment effect. Moreover, uh, even if you say, well, this is an area where there's some uncertainty, we can't be certain what will happen, there are other easier ways to help poor workers that are far less likely to have negative side effects, but those ways rarely get talked about in public debate because they're more counterintuitive and harder to understand. For example, the earned income tax credit is a much easier way to increase uh, the pay of poor workers, and it's unlikely to have disemployment effects, but for every time the the earned income tax credit gets mentioned in public debate. The minimum wage gets mentioned probably 10 or 20 or 30 times because it's easier for uh, voters to relate to. And this is just one of many examples where what the voters don't know can easily hurt them, where there's an economic effect that's clear to people who understand basic economics, but not clear to those who don't. The issue of zoning we were talking about earlier is an example of this. Economists estimate that exclusionary zoning increases the cost of housing for poor people in major cities by as much as 50%. Uh, and it uh, also denies them job opportunities by making it hard to move uh, to places where the job opportunities are. Economists across the political spectrum recognize this. Uh, President Obama's chair of the Council of Economic Advisors recently gave a big talk about it, but most of the public has little, if any, idea that this is going on. And so as a result, it's been very hard to make this into an effective political issue, even though the data shows that it inflicts great harm on many people, particularly the poor uh, and the lower middle class. Gentleman here on the left. Uh, I'm Owen Amber. I chair AIM's Strategy Markup Language Committee, and Strategy Markup Language is an international standard for strategic plans, and there's also a part two, which is performance plans, which is an American national standard. And uh, agencies are required by the Gipper Modernization Act to publish their strategic and performance plans and reports in machine-readable format. They're not doing that yet, but if and hopefully when they do, it will become easier for people to be less ignorant about how well government is performing. The question I have is to increase the, or to decrease the rationality of ignorance, what would you think about converting uh, the charitable uh, contribution um, uh, deduction into a credit rather than just uh, uh, as it currently exists? So that for every dollar that uh, a citizen or a taxpayer contributes to a charity, they pay a dollar less in, in taxes uh, uh, rather than just their marginal uh, reduction. So th that may be a good idea in terms of increasing uh, people's contribution to charity, but I'm not sure how it would reduce political ignorance. But, 
it's isn't the basic idea that you know a sense you would be doing uh, government spending as it were, and Price Fishback has argued about how this these very large sums, and so that people would well they would vote with their dollars, they would be like appropriators. Yeah. So I guess the problem is that except maybe for the very wealthy, uh, each particular individual person's spending, so to speak, would be only a tiny fraction of whatever social problem they're trying to devote it to. So you'd still have a serious problem of political ignorance. It might incentivize people to give more money to charity, which may be a good uh, thing in other ways, but I don't think it would do very much for the problem of political ignorance. You'd still face the fundamental issue that any one individual's impact is on, on outcomes is infinitesimally small, and therefore their incentive to be well-informed uh, would be very low. This may not be true for a few of the wealthiest taxpayers. They, the billionaires or whatnot, but for the vast majority of people, uh, it would likely be the case. This does, to me, raise an interesting question. I used to give some money to a school, and, you know, I often thought, I couldn't figure out whether is this actually a good idea or not, but I was using the shortcut method, which is a friend of mine was on the board of the school, so I was delegating my judgment to his. So you're really, even in that small area and something where your own money is involved, which wasn't a lot of money, but still, you're dependent on, I couldn't possibly find out exactly or have knowledge about uh, how that school was working. So it could be have the same problems in, in many ways. Gentleman in the front, and then we'll go back. Uh, thank you, I have a simple question. Uh, are younger voters more ignorant than older voters? The answer is yes. Uh, the data show that younger voters indeed are on average more ignorant than older voters. However, this is not an, an example of the current generation being worse than previous generations. It's an example of how each generation tend to be more ignorant early on in their lives and there is some accumulation of knowledge as they get older. Uh, so it is true that voters who are say 40 or 50 on average know more than those who are 20 or 30. Uh, but uh, uh, even the ones who are older, still uh, their level of political knowledge is not that good. I have follow a if I can have a follow-up. Sure. Uh, you mentioned uh, vote, uh, voting by your feet. Uh, it seems that uh, younger voters uh, seems very ignorant even about voting with your feet because if you borrow a lot of money uh, to go to college and then uh, cannot repay that loan, that seems to be a failure. Uh, of sort of basic judgment, isn't it? So people make mistakes on that, uh, but I think the basic idea of borrowing a lot of money to go to college uh, actually does make economic sense because all kinds of data by economists show that college graduates, even controlling for other variables, earn much larger incomes uh, than non-graduates. Uh, and I don't have the exact figures in my head, but it's something like many hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of your lifetime. So even if to get that, you have to borrow $100,000 or even $200,000, on average, it is likely to be worth it. Now, of course, there are some people who make mistakes. They borrow and you know, they choose the wrong major or they make bad decisions about what kind of jobs to apply for. But on the whole, borrowing a lot of money to go to college does make 
economic sense. There is controversy over whether it makes sense only because there are flaws in the system of various kinds of too much credentialism and the like. But in terms of the decision of the individual uh, student, it often usually does make sense to uh, try to make that sort of investment. Certainly, people do make mistakes on foot voting decisions. It is not my argument. Anytime we vote with our feet, we always make a great decision. We're never biased. We're always like Mr. Spock and that we're completely rational and we don't make mistakes. Rather, it's that the incidence of errors, particularly severe, persistent, and ongoing errors, tends to be much less with foot voting uh, than with ballot box voting, even in terms of trends in college majors and the like. Uh, you know, when, there's, when it looks like payoffs in some fields are lower than others, over time the number of uh, people who go into those fields diminishes. This has happened, sadly, in recent years in my field with law schools. The application to law schools are down in part because it looks like the payoff relative to tuition is not as good as it used to be. Uh, by contrast, with political ignorance, you see the same kinds of political ignorance today in many cases that you saw 50, 60, 70 years ago, uh, and fallacies can persist for centuries. A good example is the one I mentioned in my talk about trade, that even though for centuries economists have said uh, that trade free trade is superior to protectionism in the vast majority of circumstances. And even today, economists across the political spectrum uh, tend to believe that. Voters have been making the same sorts of mistakes about this for many, many decades. It's rare to see that kind of persistent error go on for so long on such large scale uh, when it comes to foot voting. But you're right, of course, that foot voters do make mistakes. I, I don't contend otherwise. Gentlemen, third from the row from the so um, you've talked a lot about how individuals um, are ignorant and they make uh, they have biases they lack knowledge that leads them to make bad decisions um, but when all these individual decisions are aggregated um, do some of these biases uh, or lack of knowledge kind of balance out um, do, does the collective usually make bad decisions or is it just the individual yeah, so uh, it's a good question. In the literature, there's a whole complex of arguments which are called miracle of aggregation arguments. Individuals might be ignorant, but if you aggregate them all up, the biases of one group will be canceled out by the biases of others, and you'll end up with a good decision. It may even be that 90% of the voters are very ignorant, but if, say, uh, of those half ca cast ignorant ballots for the Republicans and half cast ignorant ballots for the Democrats, then it's really the well-informed 10% that will make the decision. Uh, I think there are many problems with these theories. Let me summarize just a couple in the book I discuss a number of others. One is in order for this theory to work, the errors have to be randomly distributed. And it is very rarely the case that they are randomly distributed because uh, when you have two or three or four options, it is very often the case that errors in one direction are more intuitively plausible than errors in the other. For example, I mentioned the case of how errors in favor of too much protectionism, it turns out, are much more common, much more intuitively plausible to people than errors in favor of too much free trade. There are many, many other uh, examples like this. Secondly, even if voters can make as a result of these mechanisms, they make good decisions as between the choices before us, the Democrats and the Republicans, uh, and so forth. Uh, still, how ignorant the electorate is determines not just how they decide 
out of A and B. They also did help determine what A and B will be in the first place because the political parties and elites, they recognize that they face an ignorant electorate. When they go before that electorate, they usually have different platforms and often even different candidates than they would have uh, if uh, the electorate were more knowledgeable. So the issue is not just that we might make the wrong choice between, say, Trump and Hillary Clinton. The issue is that those are the choices before us uh, in the first place. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, of course, uh, there uh, are also uh, issues in terms of uh, that if the bias is even slight, that is, if one kind of error is even slightly more likely than the other kind, within a large group, uh, you'll, you will get a situation where the wrong decision will almost certainly be made. So uh, the, the, the optimists about this theory, they emphasize the idea that if each individual voter is uh, likely to be even slightly more than 50, is even slightly more than 50% likely to be right, then you almost certainly get a good collective outcome. The converse of this is that if each individual voter is even slightly less than 50% likely to be right, then with a large group, you almost certainly get a bad outcome. Uh, more can be said about this, and there are several different variants of this theory uh, in uh, chapter four of the book. I go through them in much more detail than, than I can here. Another question? Well, let me finish with a question that's been posed uh, on the foot voting. If everyone sorts out the way that it's been discussed, you're going to end up uh, with through the process and people making these decisions and also value decisions. You're going to end up with what's been called a big sort. And uh, that may not be good for libertarians. I'm not sure there's anywhere for libertarians to move, but there's going to be red and blue states, and you're going to have all the kinds of problems of fandom in, inside the states. And for the society as a whole, you're going to have a more polarized, and to the extent you want public goods for the, for the nation as a whole, you're going to have a, a, uh, an externality on the whole process. It's going to be a worse process than we would have otherwise. What do you say to those criticisms? Yeah, so when I published the first edition of the book, the most common criticism that I got was exactly this one. Whenever I would give a talk, I would say, well, what about the big sort? Isn't your proposal for decentralization going to cause more of this problem uh, based on a famous book by uh, Bill Bishop, which is called The Big Sort, which says, if you let people vote with their feet, uh, then they'll sort themselves out into all the Republicans, living Republicans, and even not just Republicans and Republicans, but really conservative Republicans with other really conservative ones, more moderate ones, with other more moderate ones, and so we'll get all this ideological segregation, which will make our political polarization even worse and increase some of the cognitive problems that I mentioned earlier. So in the second edition, I have sought to remedy this problem by uh, adding an entire section dealing with the big sort. Here is a brief capsule of what I say there. One is that the data do not support the notion that we're more ideologically segregated than we used to be. Uh, the degree of ideological segregation today is actually pretty similar to what it was back in the 1970s. Uh, second, uh, obviously you can say, well, if you decentralize more, uh, maybe you would get a big sort, even if we're not getting it now. I think my answer to that is twofold. Uh, one is when you look at people's preferences about 
where to live and about the kind of choices that they make, it doesn't seem to be the case that people uh, select for down-the-line conservatism or liberalism. Rather, they have more eclectic choices. Many people, for instance, want areas which have relatively low taxes and cheap housing, which may imply a kind of red model, but it doesn't follow that they also like red social policies as well, uh, or blue ones uh, if they like uh, blue economic policies. So often, the sorting actually cuts across ideological and partisan lines rather than within them. Uh, and then finally, even if you do get somewhat more ideological or partisan sorting, that's not necessarily such a bad thing because although in that situation people will be biased and will often close themselves off to opposing source of information, sadly, that's what they do already. Even in the status quo, only a tiny fraction of Americans ever even discuss politics with people who have significantly different views from their own. And this is even more of a tendency with those who are more interested in politics. So if there is greater segregation in, uh, in that sense, it's not clear that the costs will be all that severe. And I think also some degree of ideological segregation is actually desirable in that when you have different communities pursuing different kinds of policies, first of all, you get competition between different models, which may incentivize them to improve their performance. Uh, and second, uh, having different communities with different approaches uh, itself can help provide information. In some cases, a particular community will be so successful that it provides at least some degree of example effect for others. I mentioned the debate over zoning that's going on. Some of that is driven by the fact that the state of Texas, which certainly isn't perfect in every respect by any means, but one thing they do get right is that their big cities, particularly Houston, either have no zoning, as in the case of Houston, or relatively little zoning compared to those in the west and in the northeast. And as a result, they've had a lot of in-migration to those uh, places, and that has stimulated debate about zoning uh, elsewhere. Uh, there are other historical examples uh, of this as well. I think the progress of same-sex marriage in recent years is in part the result of the fact that some states uh, had it early on, Massachusetts, for instance, and you know, nothing, at least I would contend, nothing very horrible happened as a result. Uh, so it became much harder for people elsewhere to think, well, having same-sex marriage means the collapse of Western civilization or of social morality because it didn't happen in these few states that adopted earlier. And there are other examples. So I think some degree of bias and segregation will occur, but I don't think you're going to get anything like this nightmare scenario which Bill Bishop paints in the big sort. It just struck me that uh, referring to red states for decades and decades, maybe even for centuries until 2000, the word red was associated with the party of the left. <laughs> then you have one election and one map by, by CNN has red states being Republican. And ever since, it's been red state is the party of the right. Uh, we're going to go to lunch now. I'd like to invite you to lunch. The lunch will be held on the second level. As many of you will know, you go to the front, go up the staircase. The George M. Yeager Conference Center is in the back. That's where the lunch will be. Uh, the restrooms are on the second floor on your way to lunch. And also, you will see that you can purchase a copy of Ilya's book uh, upstairs. And I'm sure he'll be happy to talk to you about it or to sign it. And I would like to, once again, to finish up, to congratulate Ilya for getting to a second edition. Almost very few authors sell enough books and attract enough interest 
to get to a second edition of a book. This is the book, Democracy and Political Ignorance. It is appearing uh, right now, basically. Uh, so you'll be out there. You can find it online, too, if you don't want to buy it here at Cato. And so thank you, Ilya, for coming today. I would like to thank Kristen Campbell for coming, making her first appearance here at Cato, and I hope there are many more in the future. And I'd like to thank you all for coming, and please stay for lunch, and we'll continue this conversation.